Welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. Adam Schultz is the Westway Explorer-in-Residence at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. He's also the author of national bestsellers, Alone Against the North, A History of Canada in Ten Maps, Beyond the Trees, and The Whisper on the Night Wind. His most recent book, already a national bestseller, Where the Falcon Flies, came about when Schultz spotted a majestic peregrine falcon flying across the neighboring fields near Lake Erie. Anyone who listens knows Adam is one of our favorite guests, and we're happy to welcome them back to Northern Latitudes. Welcome back to Northern Latitudes, Adam. How, you, how have you been? I've been very well. A little busy, <laughs> but perfectly well. Thanks for having me back on the program. The launch of your new book, which is called Where the Falcon Flies, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Going back to when you first saw this trip in your mind you talk about it a little bit in this in the book and i'm surprised at how fast and then how slow for other reasons that this trip came about yes i mean the idea for the adventure was fairly spontaneous uh it literally happened when i was in my living room looking out the front window in our house uh, just outside St. Williams, which is in Norfolk County in Southern Ontario, right on the North shore of Lake Erie down about Long Point Way, or for people who are not familiar with it, about half hour west of uh, Port Dover by car. I was looking out our front window in our living room one April, and I just happened to see a bird fly across the neighboring cornfield. And I recognized it immediately. It was a bird I'd seen many times before in the Arctic. In fact, it was a peregrine falcon, so not a bird you would mistake if you've seen it before. One of the most majestic birds in the world. Um, and when I saw that falcon cross, because I'd seen so many of the falcons there nesting, they migrate to the Arctic every summer and they uh, make their nests there, lay their eggs, and then in the fall they migrate back. So in that moment, the idea immediately entered my head, hey, why not grab my backpack and my canoe and follow this falcon from our front porch to the Arctic? I mean, it makes this journey from Southern Ontario, thousands of kilometers north. And it's kind of a reminder that even in Southern Canada, um, the Arctic is not as far away as we think. The birds are a perfect illustration of the ties that bind Canada's diverse landscape. So it happened spontaneously, uh, the idea of the journey. And if you've already read the book, you know that there's a few uh, road bumps along the way, as is often the case with any great adventure. Um, but it did eventually happen, and I followed the falcon. Yeah, and it, obviously COVID was one of the things that set you back in launching this, but there's a couple of things that are different in a fairly major way than the voyages you've written about in the past. And the first one was that you now have a family. How did that affect things? Well, that had a major impact, uh, at least on the mental side of things. I mean, the physical nuts and bolts of the journey were still the same, the canoeing and the hiking and the portaging, but the mental side of things was a totally different equation than on any of my past uh, along wilderness journeys. Um, yes, as you alluded to, uh, my son Thomas was born, and he was just over a year old uh, when I set off on this journey. 
And when I did my journey alone across the Arctic, I wasn't married and I certainly didn't have any kids. Um, so there wasn't that, that feeling of, uh, of heart sick um, for my family that I had to contend with like I did on this journey. But my philosophy has always been to try to look on the bright side, uh, to find a silver lining and try to turn a negative into a positive. So on the one hand, you know, this was something that was weighing on me, but on the other hand, I tried to make it a, a extra motivation um, to keep going, uh, to get out of the tent early rather than stay in my sleeping bag another half hour. I think, yeah, I got to get home to my family. So let's get out into the frosty air, put on some wet socks, get back in that canoe and paddle 13 or 14 or even 15 or 16 hours if the wind was good um, because it's just bringing me home sooner. So I tried to turn it into a positive and, and have it as extra motivation, extra wind in my sails, extra spring in my step on this journey. And the second thing that was much different in this trip is you spent you spent the first half in very populated waters. How different was that for you? Well, that was a huge contrast. It was like night and day to be camping in the city of Toronto, home to millions of people compared to with like the Arctic tundra where there's not another soul around for hundreds of miles. Um, and that was before I had embarked, uh, in my mind, one of the most daunting aspects of the journey, you know, facing polar bears or whitewater rapids on some northern river. I was like, yeah, that's something I can handle. I mean, it's a hazard, but it's a familiar hazard. Whereas I have no idea what's going to happen when I portage through the city of Niagara Falls or when I canoe through Montreal or Toronto or Hamilton. Um, that's just a wild card. I don't know how it's going to go if I'm going to have to, you know, deal with people um, causing trouble in the night or if I'm not going to have permission to set up my tent. I had no idea. So to me, that was the unknown. But I don't know. There's also something appealing about the unknown and I like a challenge. So I figured you only live once. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just going to give it my best shot and, uh, and go. So that's what I did. Yeah. And in general, your stories about meeting people along the way were really positive reflection back on people. I mean, everybody was for the most part, very helpful and maybe to some point for you and your approach, overly helpful because they always wanted to do so much for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say uh, without exception, every single person I can honestly say who I cross paths with on this journey, just complete strangers who I randomly uh, stumbled upon or cross paths with, without exception, every single person showed me nothing but kindness and enthusiasm and eagerness uh, to help me in any way they could, which was all the more remarkable since the vast majority I didn't even know I was on a journey to the Arctic since I didn't tell them. Uh, usually I would say as little as possible, like I'm just out canoeing or I'm canoeing through the Great Lakes, but it didn't matter. I mean, um, it was certainly to me one of the most rewarding aspects of this journey is the kindness of total strangers. I mean, I think nowadays uh, it's very easy, especially with our 24-hour news cycles and social media to get cynical about the state of the and uh, those sorts of things. But I found that some old fashioned travel was a remarkable antidote to that. And if anyone is ever, uh, discouraged about the state of the world, they should get out and do some old fashioned travel because it was certainly um, an eye opener to me, just the kindness of complete strangers from literally everywhere I went from the biggest cities to the smallest towns. Uh, everyone I crossed paths with was nothing but kind and enthusiastic and eager to help. So to me, that was one of the best parts of my journey. And I tried to share as many of those stories as I could in my book. 
uh, wherever possible, I would write down people's names so that I could mention them um, in my book and, and talk about some of these um, magic moments, really, when total strangers opened their doors to me or gave me food or water or advice or just uh, just encouragement, a thumbs up or whatever it was as I was working my way north. Yeah, and I'll be honest, it's one of the favorite, my favorite aspects of the book. The stories about the people uh, and what they were offering and how they tried to help and stuff was just so, like you said, reassuring. And Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, maybe, uh, I mean, Canadians have that reputation and, uh, and it might be something to do about traveling when they see you in a canoe or they know you're not from around these parts. And I like to think, you know, there's, a, there's an aspect of like local pride. Oh, you're not from the neighborhood. Well, you know, you should go to the right here or you can camp under that bridge there. Um, but whatever it was, I mean, it was certainly a very uh, positive feeling. Uh, just meeting complete strangers and, and having them show so much uh, kindness to me and open doors for me. Um, I really like that. So I'm glad to hear you. I mean, the book is brand new. It's only been out for a week. So I really haven't heard that much feedback yet, yet from re readers. Um, but it's nice to build that part because it is a pretty big um, deviation from my past books, which are mostly wilderness books without a whole lot of uh, interaction with other people. I mean, on only very rare occasions had, did I come across someone in the Arctic on my journey, the 4,000 kilometer journey across the Arctic. But in this one, I figured in my journal when I did the tally at the end that I had encountered around 150 different people um, on my journey, which you might think just at a glance, it surely would have been more than that traveling through places like Toronto and Montreal. But for the most part, it was still very early in the season. I left on April 24th and the Great Lakes I found pretty deserted at that point because it was a cold, wet spring. This was last year, 2022. Uh, so there wasn't always a lot of people around down along the water. I think I only ever saw one other canoeist in Southern Ontario. And that was down right near the border between Ontario and Quebec, two people out paddling who again were perfectly nice and friendly when they saw me. Um, so I didn't see as many people as you would think, but the ones that I did, everyone was just perfectly kind and enthusiastic about uh, helping me. What surprised you the most about the trip on the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence? Because again, that's quite different to the, what you're usually doing. And I mean, obviously the people, but also the conditions and the water itself. Did you, did anything surprise you or? There was lots of, uh, on every adventure I do, every journey I undertake, no matter how much uh, homework I do in, in advance, prepping and researching, I always find that it's it's nothing like I imagined and I'm always continuously surprised and astonished by the things I come across. On the Great Lakes, I would say, um, I mean, I, I was trying to be as cautious as possible and anyone who's had any familiarity with the Great Lakes at all knows that they have a notorious reputation as being very stormy, powerful swells, big storms. And you have to be very careful even on motorboats out on the lakes, uh, let alone in a canoe. I mean, a lot of people said, you're crazy. You're going to go canoeing on Lake Erie in April. Are you out of your mind? Like they're huge storms. You know, the lake turns stormy on a dime, like without very little warning. So because I was trying to be as cautious as, as possible, I wasn't really surprised when I faced big storms and big lakes or big waves on both Ontario and Erie because I was anticipating that. But what I will say really did surprise me that, that I did, didn't expect um, is how it really is. There's astonishing um, landscapes, natural landscapes, wild places, even on the doorsteps of our biggest cities like Toronto and Montreal. 
And it certainly changed my perspective. I can never travel or even drive down the QEW or the 401 and look at it the same. It's the, doing the journey and traveling in slow motion, because even when you're traveling fast in a canoe, you're not going that fast. You're looking at the same vista, the same landscape for hours from the stern of your canoe, but it completely changed my perspective. And now when I go over, for example, the Burlington Skyway, it always puts a smile on my face because I think back, oh yeah, that's right where I was when that storm came in. And there was that beautiful little patch of forest with the staghorn sumac and the cottonwood that I slept in right under the bridge. And it made me think that, you know, in this country, even in the hearts of our biggest cities, we still have these wild little places that I could find as, as refuge or as an escape when I needed to make a camp and set up my tent. And I was worried about that beforehand. I was like, where am I going to camp in the GTA? But there was two nights, back-to-back uh, -back nights, where I ended up having to make sort of a hasty stop in, in Toronto within the city limits. And both times, even though I was within the city limits of Toronto, I felt very far away from the hustle and bustle of the city in secluded little coves or, in one case, an island just offshore in the Toronto Islands. Could have been a Robinson Crusoe Island. Uh, I was a kilometer from downtown Toronto, but I felt like I was on the far side of the world. Just this really ref refreshingly wild space with a forest full of you know ancient oaks and maples and uh, wildlife from migrating birds heading like I was to the Arctic. Uh, to fox and coyotes and even white-tailed deer in some places, uh, it really made me think, you know, this is one of the great things about Canada, that no matter where you live in this country, from Vancouver to Newfoundland, even in the hearts of our biggest cities, uh, you're never you're never very far from a wild space, which is pretty remarkable. And the Great Lakes have a charm all of their own. I mean, it's a strange contrast, and I would often, you know, reflect on this paradox as I was paddling, that on my left, on the on my left hand side would be cities of asphalt and concrete and glass and traffic in millions of people. And on my right, if I just glanced the other direction, was the vast waters of the open lake um, and all of this solitude and wildness that is the Great Lakes. So that was a really strange contrast, but it was something I, I enjoyed as well about the journey. Yeah, and in addition to a great amount of nature in this country, we have a great of a great amount of unknown history, and you managed to weave quite a bit of that through the book as usual. Some things that I certainly didn't know, and I'm sure other people don't know either about our country. And there's such a great amount of history right along the Great Lakes and the the St. Lawrence, and I found it really, um, I don't know, intriguing and refreshing reading the parts where you were passing in my neighborhood, and you were using the old canal, which is the Gallup Canal, down around Iroquois, Morseburg, that area, to get out of the big water, to get away from the big boats. And the local paddling community here, we do the same thing. And for that, for most of us cannot relate at all to what you do. There's a little passages through here where you were using through the Thousand Islands and through, like I said, the Gallup Canal and the old canal down by Cardinal that we can all relate to. And it made it a very, very comforting read. Well, that's good. To, to the extent that I have heard back from readers, they've all made similar comments to yours, you know, whether it's in Cap Sante, Quebec, or in uh, on Lake Erie or the Niagara River, everyone's saying, oh, I could relate to that part because that's where I go paddling, or I know exactly the park that you were describing, or that old house you mentioned, or, you know, that that winery, people, people know the spot. So that's nice. And even on the, right where you're discussing, 
um, when I was outside of Cardinal, in speaking of the history, you know, I pulled into that little canal and there was an abandoned old farmhouse that looked very old. As, the, as you know, there's lots of very old farmhouses along the river. They've survived the ravages of time, two centuries old or more in some cases. And one of them was abandoned, which, you know, it was a, it was a dark night and the moon was rising and there was forest all around that had grown up around this abandoned farmhouse. And I was like, wow, this is a little bit eerie, but the history and, and, and being here, I wanted to share some of that in the book. So as much as possible, I tried to share with the reader um, all of the local places I came upon whenever there was a good anecdote or story uh, with the history of a particular town or village I passed through. I tried to weave that into the chapters of my book. You mentioned all kinds of wildlife along that part of the trip as well, but that's part of, well, the obvious reason for your voyage was to follow the falcons to the north. So when you turned to the north and all of a sudden you were back into wild country, as it were, what changed? Like, I mean, as far as your approach was probably the same, but mentally you had gone through this, like I said, this totally uh, foreign kind of travel for you. And now you were back into the wilderness. Did anything change right at that moment? Did, you know, you kind of look back and go, huh, you know, that was better than I thought here we go or what happens when you turn north well i mean i suppose it would be natural to think you know mentally that's got to be a little bit daunting because now you're going into a place where if you get into trouble help is far away and a long time coming if at all so you're you have to be more cautious now to a certain extent in terms of dealing with wilderness dangers like bears and hypothermia or lightning or fires or or what have you whitewater rapids and things but i think right from the start I sort of mentally put myself into that space where it's like you have to, even if you are traveling through Southern Ontario, you have to have the mindset that you're responsible for your own safety. And, you know, if you flip your canoe in a storm off of Port Coburn, uh, no one's coming to rescue you. Hypothermia is going to set in very quickly. So I kind of had, I mentally, I was sort of in the zone to use an athlete's expression right from the start. So that wasn't such a contrast in a way though, it was as nice as everyone was, it was sort of a relief to get back into the wild because that's something I've loved ever since I was a kid, um, going out into the wilderness. There's something about it that I find almost bewitching, uh, the allure or the call of the wild, whatever you want to call it. I had, I'm under that spell, um, very much. So that was a sort of relief to get back out there at minimum. I thought to myself, I'll have more flexibility when it comes to, to, uh, picking campsites because I don't have to worry about, oh, it's nothing but a brick wall or concrete walls or steel walls or, or fences. Um, so now at least I have a little more flexibility in terms of I can call any old patch of forest uh, or any stretch of river or lakeshore home for the night. Now I found out later on in my journey as I was getting closer to the Arctic, that wasn't necessarily the case. On the last river of my journey on the George River, much of the shoreline was not suitable for camping because it was just rocks boulders and things or or steep slopes right down to the water's edge so you'd be sleeping on a really really steep slope and sometimes i would do that by necessity but even i would try to pick a relatively level patch of ground so that was a little bit familiar but of course i have to be more careful with bears and things like that um, on the first part of my route through the great lakes i would often just eat whatever food i had to eat which wasn't much inside my tent uh, because it was very wet spring, lots of rain, storms and things. So for convenience and comfort to eat my food inside my tent, of course, in bear territory, for the most part, I would avoid doing that because I didn't want to attract bears 
uh, into my tent. So I would, you know, change my routine a little bit because now I'm in the wilderness and I have to be aware of these potential hazards. I was surprised at how little you ate while you were, while you were paddling the Great Lake St. Lawrence. Uh, um, I was starving. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have pictures without my shirt on, but I didn't put them in the book. The book does have a lot of color photos. I think there's like 46 or 47 color photos in the book. I did not include any of those shirtless ones showing how skinny I was. You can see my ribs. Yeah, I was incredibly hungry. I've never been so hungry, even on my journey alone across the Arctic, which was a little bit longer. That was about 4,000 kilometers compared to around 3,400 kilometers, but I was hungrier here. Um, I just didn't have as much food on me or in my canoe as I did on past adventures. And there was a bunch of reasons for that that I get into in the book. Um, but suffice to say, I was very, very hungry and very, very excited to eat, eat a pizza at the end of this journey. <laughs> <laughs> or a subway in Kingston, right? <laughs> That was one of the happiest <laughs> moments when I came across that subway. I know a lot of people would think naturally, like, while well, you're traveling through southern Ontario and southern Quebec, can't you just get food like Tim Hortons and McDonald's whenever you want? And you might think so, but then you would discover when you're actually out in a canoe, it is not that simple. Um, as good-natured as everyone was that I came across, you still don't want to push your luck and just leave your 15-foot canoe with all of your gear, your camera equipment, your solar panel to charge your batteries just unattended. It was kind of like the canoe and I were, or were tethered at the hip. So wherever I went, the canoe went to. And for the most part, all of those restaurants or, or convenience stores are not right on the water. They're inland. So that meant I couldn't get to them, uh, except for a couple of very rare occasions. Like There was a grocery store outside of Trenton, and it was right near the water's edge on the Bay of Quinty. And there was some Phragmites and other bushes there. So I was like, I'll just hide my canoe in the bushes, run like mad into the store, looking a little wild and disheveled pick up on some delicacies, some yogurt and raisins and grapes, and then run like a bandit back to my canoe and eat these. So I did that on a couple occasions, but it was relatively rare. And sometimes I would meet people who probably with just one look saw how hungry I was paddling this canoe and they would sometimes toss food to me. Uh, and that was always, always a joy and a blessing whenever that happened. Yes. The story of the subway in Kingston is almost worth the, almost worth the price of the book in itself. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, you do such a great job of describing the thing, you, you know, what you're looking forward to and then realizing what you have to do to get it. It's, it's a very good part of the book. It's a, it's a really, it's a really good story. Yeah. I saw that on, I saw it on Google maps that there was a subway right near the lake shore, just outside on the outskirts of Kingston. And I was like, oh man, I partly as well, as I mentioned earlier, I was trying to keep it, uh, pushing on to get home, finish the journey within three to four months. I didn't want it to go on longer than that. So I didn't want to deviate from my rations if I could avoid it, but the subway was just irresistible. My mouth was watering. I'm like, it's right there. All I have to do is land my canoe, hide it in the woods and I can get there. But what I didn't expect was there were actually limestone cliffs outside of Kingston along Lake Ontario. And I was like, Oh no, how the heck am I going to get up this cliff? And anyone who's familiar with the lake there will know that there's cliffs, but I didn't know that. I'd never been along that section of Lake Ontario ever before. So that caught me off guard, but the subway was just too irresistible. And I was like, cliffs or no cliffs, I cannot avoid um, trying to get to this subway. So uh, luckily I found a way. And your next big bout with cliffs is in Northern Labrador <laughs> in the fog. And you, you talk about the story of, you know, obviously, we're trying to find a falcon. And again, you end up in this crazy place for somebody on their own so far from help. And it's, 
it's an amazing part of the story as you're climbing these, we'll call them cliffs, cliffs to to hear or then see the bird that you've been chasing across the continent. Yes, yeah, in the foothills of the Torngat Mountains, which seem like something out of a legend or a fairy tale. They don't; they seem too majestic and mystical to be real. And I knew from my research beforehand that that was one of the best places to find torn or to find peregrine falcons that they nest in those mountains because they have the exact sort of sheer cliffs they like. Um, so when I reached the Torn Gats, I secured my canoe, tied it up with a rope to a spruce tree. It had been so wet, I was worried a little bit that the river would rise. Then uh, told it, you know, don't worry, I'll be back in a week or so. And then with the backpack, I set off into the mountains, climbing cliffs, climbing up mountain slopes to search for falcon's nests. And to the extent that I had a plan from when I left home, that was it, to, to go out there with my camera and try to find a falcon um, on a nest in the cliffs and in, in the mountains. So it did feel a little surreal uh, after three months of effort to finally have gotten to those mountains. It felt almost like I was in a daydream. But the hunger and the cold brought me back to reality <laughs> as I was sitting there looking for falcons. And the torn gats, I mean, do you ever think about when you're in places like this, how few people have probably seen what you're seeing? Oh, absolutely. I do reflect on that. And to me, that's part of the mystery and the appeal of these ultra isolated or remote places where there's no human settlements, no roads, no airports, very difficult to get to. I mean, the Torngats, to the extent that people visit them, it's mostly on the Atlantic side, so facing out towards the Labrador Sea, and there are boats and helicopters that will take people into there. Um, but the section that I was hiking into, which is really just the foothills, I mean, they're pretty sizable mountains, but not as high as they get. I mean, they eventually get to the highest peaks in mainland Canada, anywhere east of the Rockies. Uh, that's a very off-the-beaten track part of the mountain range where there's no trails, no paths whatsoever, no signs of, of humans, no litter, no pop can, not even a Tim Hortons cup, uh, nothing at all. So that's a very special feeling. I mean, as I said, it feels almost like you've, you know, left the uh, planet earth and wandered into some other realm. It just seems like something otherworldly and very, very special. So yeah, that was definitely one of the most rewarding parts of my journey. And you finally reached the north you, uh, on Gava Bay. And what did it feel like? Did it feel different to finish this one? Oh, yes, absolutely. It felt very different. You know, when I did my journey alone across the Arctic before I was a parent, before I was married, um, there was a part of me that was certainly relieved to finish my 4,000-kilometer journey that was looking forward to finally getting a hot shower and a decent meal. But there was another part of me that – felt very bittersweet that didn't want the journey to end that would have kept going if it had been possible that had, you know, I'd so fallen in love with the wild and, and just my routine of paddling and trekking and finding new things around each river bend or over each next hill that didn't want it to end. But that was not the case on this journey. When I finally reached the end, it was a feeling of relief. Like, Oh goodness, I survived. It felt like a cat that had used up eight of its nine lives and I've gotten to the end and now I can go home to my family. So it was a feeling of relief. I mean, I was certainly um, satisfied to have finished the journey, but I was, I was very happy that it was over and that I would be going home uh, soon. That's great, Adam. Thanks. 
Adam Schultz is a historian, archaeologist, geographer, and the Westaway Explorer in Residence at the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. His new book, available from Penguin Books, is called Where the Falcon Flies, and you can get it almost anywhere you can buy good books, and it is a good book. Thanks, Adam. Uh, thank you very much, Bill. Thanks for joining us on Northern Latitudes. Remember, you can always stay connected with us on all your major podcast platforms. Just search for Northern Latitudes and hit that subscribe button to ensure you never miss an episode. For even more content, including the photo gallery, visit our website at northernlatitudes.ca. We'd like to thank all our guests, sponsors, and most importantly, you, our listeners, for tuning in today. Remember, keep exploring, stay adventurous, and keep chasing your dreams. Until next time, I'm Bill Alt, signing off from Northern Latitudes. Northern Latitudes.